I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Tashaw and Edouard Louis. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. Um, it's a real pleasure to have you, uh, have you all here with us. Um, I think I'm just going to leap in and, and ask it well certain just first question which is that i'm sure we'll come back later on in the in the session to talk about your earlier works um but this latest book um a woman's battles and transformations follows on from your last book who killed my father kyoto montpel which is which enjoyed huge success in france um it's the most translated of all your books um even more than the first two, which were already huge international successes. Tell us how you came to think about this book, how, uh, how you came to want to write this story about your mother and her, her path through life. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dash, and, and thank you to the, to the bookstore and all the people who were involved in today's event. The thing is, I, in order to in order to write a book, I always uh, I always stop the books that I'm writing in the moment I'm writing it. I mean, all the books I have written in the past were books that I decided to write suddenly while I was writing something else, and suddenly I felt um, hit by something around me uh, that made me think uh, I have to write about that and I cannot write about anything else. And regarding this book, I was. I was trying to write a book about um, about pleasure. I was trying to write a book about uh, about sex. Um, I wanted to write, you know, I had been writing books about violence. I had been writing books about poverty, about shame, about uh, uh, difficult issues. And I thought maybe I want to try something lighter and something something different. And so I started to write that book. And and one day I was home. Uh, organizing paper, you know, one, one, like administrative papers and everything, trying to classify them like one of those very boring days that I try to avoid, but sometimes I have to do it. And while organizing those papers, I found a picture of my mother uh, when she was uh, 20 years old or something, which, which is, is on the, the cover the, of the on, book. On the cover of the book. And I didn't know I had that picture. Um, I don't know where I got it. Uh, I don't know who gave that picture to me, but I had it in, in my papers. And when I saw the pictures, uh, this picture, I realized that uh, this woman on the picture was my mother eight or nine years be before she became my mother, mm -hmm. because she got pregnant and because before she had, she had me as a, as, a, as a child. And the woman that I knew in my childhood had nothing to do with that woman from the picture. Like this woman on the picture looks uh, seductive, she looks happy, she looks soft, she looks, uh, she's 
almost Cassidy's Caffrey. Yeah. You know, she's uh, she's doing like a, a kind of thing with her lips, um, and uh, and the woman that I knew in my childhood, my mother, eight or nine years later, was um, a very gray person, a very sad person, a very violent person. Someone who was suffering, someone who would never smile, someone who would never try to be seductive like on this picture, someone who was um, very often uh, sad and unhappy. She was telling me I have, during my childhood, she was telling me again and again, I have a shit life. I had a shit life. I have a shit life. I don't understand why I have that, why I have that life. And she was also a very uh, violent person, uh, ashamed of me. Uh, like I described in my first book, uh, The End of Eddie, always uh, trying to tell me, uh, why do you talk like that? Why do you talk like a girl? Why do you act like a faggot? Why do you look like a pussy? Or like those kind of things that were destroying my childhood. And so when I, when I found that picture of her a few years before, I asked myself, what happened? You know, why, why did this face disappear? Uh, why this, this happiness disappeared. How did it occur? How did it happen? And suddenly I, I started to want to, to write a sort of um, archaeology of the destruction of this happiness, you know, to try to trace back what destroyed this face that she had a few years before. And because of that, I was suddenly ashamed of the book I was writing about. I thought I cannot write about uh, pleasure or beauty when there is this um, urgent matter that is punching me and telling me, try to tell the story of that, of the, of that woman. And so I started, from, I started from that picture and then I started to understand how much uh, my father, masculine domination, the society <coughs> around us <coughs> destroys that face that she, that she had on this picture until she eventually uh, reclaims that happiness again. Uh, which is the other part of the book. I want to, go, well, I want to come back later uh, to this interplay in, your, in all your work um, and also in your life between um, the sheer pleasure of, of life and you know, the, the intensity of living and having to deal with the pressures of, of, of life, you know, the pressures of poverty, the pressures of coming from a working class background. But before that, I, I just wanted to pick up on something you said about um, the violence, the, the aggression your mother, you felt your mother had towards you when you were a child, you know, problems with your being queer. Um, you know, you grew up, as, you, as we know from your early books, in, in quite a sort of a, a tough working class, very masculine uh, village, a very masculine environment, where you, from a very early age, uh, stood out because you knew you were queer, you were queer, and you were very visibly queer. Uh, tell us a little bit about how in this book, it's precisely the, your queer identity that helped you come closer to your mother and to be able to tell her story. Finally, after all those years of, of seeing her really as, a, as an enemy, someone who was trying to sort of part of the forces who was trying to crush, that were trying to crush you. Mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the, the, um, what, I, what, I, what I try to explore in, in, in that book is the fact that uh, me as a gay person and my mother as a woman, uh, we were suffering from the same kind of violence, which was masculine violence, which was masculine domination in different ways. And like in many, like, like in many situations in our lives, the fact of living the same domination doesn't put people together. Mm. It split people. 
you know mm. it's a little bit like the violence of capitalism uh, is splitting uh, refugees and migrants from white working class people from the north of France who yeah, would vote absolutely. for the far right or yeah. everything and at the end they suffer from the same uh, system of exploitation of domination of poverty of misery of exclusion and the fact that you leave Uh, the same domination that someone else doesn't necessarily create a common ground for understanding, for discussion, for conversation with people. And so, as a, as a, as a child, even if I was gay and suffering from, from, from homophobia in my everyday life, um, I was violent towards my mother because she was a woman, because we were in a context where my father was telling my mother, uh, you stay home, uh, you cook, uh, you don't work, he didn't want my mother to work, you don't put makeup, he was telling my mother, you know, makeup is for sluts, so you cannot put makeup, uh, you raise the kids, uh, you wait for me every day, my father would go to the cafe of the village, you know, and uh, as, as Pierre Bourdieu once mentioned, domination is always a domination of time, you know, a domination of timing. And my father, as a dominant figure in the family, was the master of time. And we were always supposed to wait for him. So, you know, we had, my mother had to cook for him, and we would never know exactly when he would come back. But if we would try to eat without him before he arrived, he would mm. become furious, like, why didn't you wait for me, and why didn't you... And so, as a child, I was, in a way interiorizing this way that my mother was being treated and I was reproducing it, you know. Uh, children are fascists. They <laughs> always reproduce the world around them. You know, you, there are so many stories in the papers. Go, go check what happens when a little boy decides to come with a, at, at school with a Barbie girl uh, <laughs> a bag, you know. Other kids destroy him. Uh, when you are a kid, you absorb the world around you and you don't want that world to change. You know? no, the kids, children really don't want any change. I, mean, no. I didn't want any change when I was a <laughs> They child. are scared of that. They don't understand that. They don't want their parents to divorce, for example, where even though some, it's very often very good for them. And, and so I didn't want my mother to step out of her position. And there is this scene where, that, I, that I recount in the book, you know, my mother, as I was saying before, she was this very sad person, very gray, always like this in the shadow, smoking a cigarette, never talking, uh, or talking, but not interacting, like in a very strange way. And every five years, she would drink a little bit of alcohol and she would put music on And she would smile and she would listen to Scorpio, you know, the, the rock band. And she would say, oh, it's the music of my youth. And she it's would sing. She would and sing. she would sing and she would smile. And, she would and I remember as a, as a child, when I was eight or nine years old, I couldn't, I couldn't bear that. I didn't want her to smile. For, 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 for me, it was not her role to do that. It was not her role to smile. And there is this scene in the book, which I, you know, I'm, I have goosebumps of shame telling this, but I was eight or nine years old and I would see my mother smile and I would come and I would tell her, stop smiling. You're ridiculous when you do that. You're ridiculous when you sing. And so I was reproducing on her this domination that she was suffering from, and she was reproducing the homophobia that uh, the world around me was putting on my shoulders, that my father was blaming me for like being not masculine enough. And so once again, this same domination was putting us apart. But eventually, one day, it became the mean to understand each other 
in a certain way to understand each other's past. And this is, for me, this is the core of this book. This is what, what I, I could call a paradox of domination, which is the fact that sometimes, precisely because you suffer from domination, domination puts you outside of society, outside of power, outside of the center with a capital C. And because you are outside, one day you come to reclaim what have been stolen from you, because you see things from the outside. And the thing for someone like my father in Who Killed My Father, almost all the things that he suffered from in his life, he went through it with, with the feeling of, uh, of choosing it, you know? He was drinking a lot because it was a masculine thing to do, and therefore he destroyed his, his, his back. He was never uh, kind with other people, and people were not kind with him in return because it was a masculine thing to he do. He was already excluded from school very early on. He made, made it so that he was excluded from school very early on because that was what tough guys in the village did. It was a performance of masculinity. Not going to school was a real performance, like a show of saying, I am masculine, and therefore I don't submit myself to the school system or to orders that I receive from other people to orders that I receive from people who appears are mm. more feminine, for example, because culture is often associated with femininity yeah. in the working class. And scholarship. As co exactly. And, and, and so my father, all the things that he was suffering from, because he was in the center of everything, he thought that he was choosing them. But my mother, as a woman, she, she never thought that she was choosing it was my father who told her, you stay home. It was my father who told her, you cook. It was my father who told her, you raise the kid and you shut up. And paradoxically, because of that, one day she came and she said, they stole something from me. Because she didn't have the illusion of a choice. And paradoxically, these dominations that can very often destroy you is in some configuration the way and the mean for your liberation. And the fact that my father was dominant made this liberation impossible. And my mother, the fact that she was a woman, or me as a gay person, is exactly the parallel trajectory that I had. I, I was not welcome in this world. I was not welcome in my family. I was not welcome in my milieu. People hated me. People, the village, the, the yeah. village didn't like me or thought I was funny because I was, uh, at, in the best case scenarios, they would think I am funny. And <laughs> in the worst case scenarios, they would think I was disgusting. And so one day I was able to reclaim something and say, okay, I'm going to do something and it will be my revenge against what they did to me and I will, I will study and I, read, I will go to the city and everything I will do will be revenge against those people who treat, treated me as if I was nothing. And suddenly, after this distance that was being put between me and my milieu and me and my mother and having those two trajectories through a lot of events and accidents and hazards that I tell in the book, we realized that we were going through the same thing. And so a discussion started when this, this is the second part of the book, when my mother, after 20 years with my father, one night she calls me and she tells me, I did it. And when she told me I did it, I knew what she was talking yeah, about. You knew immediately in the book. It's a very pretty, beautiful moment. It's, it's, <laughs> a, it's almost as if there's this sort of... Uh, instinctive understanding between mother and son, people who, who are supposed not to understand each other, suddenly that one, just those few words, meant showed that actually you have understood each other. You've, you've understood the, the idea of liberation. Yes, because we, we had been talking about it in the months before also. I was telling my mother 
my father cannot treat you like this, it's not possible, you know. I was going to the city, I was studying, I was the first person in my family to go study in the city. And because of that, I was the first in my family to be confronted to other social classes. And I don't say that, of course, they, they, that there are no uh, masculine domination in those classes, but I would meet women who had more power than my mother mm. because they had cultural capital or economical capital. They had, and so I saw they were much more free than my mother because of those privileges that they had or that they had uh, 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 been taking uh, from society. And, and I was seeing a gap. And I remember I was talking to my mother and it was, for me it was so unfair that my mother was going through all that when my new friends in Paris, you know, you had a woman who had a job, who were free, who could do whatever they wanted, who would go on vacation without their family or without their husband. For me, all of that was going to have a coffee at the, uh, or a walk in the, the Luxembourg Gardens. Yes, <laughs> to, to, and have friends independently from their husband. For me, all of that was exotic because my mother ne was never had that right. And we had this conversation, and, uh, and I mean, it's not me who liberated my mother because she had done it before me. She had done it with her first husband, mm. so I, I, I didn't teach her anything. But it was a process of, of talking. And so the day she told me, I did it, I knew what she was talking about. She took all the stuff of my father, she put everything in garbage bag, she threw everything <laughs> through the window, she locked the door and she told my father never to come back. And after that, she went to the city and she made friends and she started to put makeup and to be happy about it, to be proud of it and to tell me, look, I'm beautiful now. Um, and so the book is after this, libera the, 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 this situation with my father, the, the itinerary of, a, of an emancipation and of a liberation. But just, be just before we get to that point of, of shared liberation, which is, like, which is how I like to see it, your relationship, because you escaped the village first, um, you escaped your milieu f before she did. And so there was a period, period which you describe in the book um, when you were already in Amiens and for the first time through meeting other people and uh, you know, new people who had, you know, who had access to you know, books and culture and music and um, you were accepted into a, school, into a lycée that, um, that taught theatre and so you were learning all these new things. You were learning new language, new vocabulary and that moment was a little bit complicated because you had to come back to the village from time to time. Mm -hmm and be confronted with all the things you were trying to, to, to leave behind, which were in many ways uh, represented by your mother. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a, in a way, um, to allow this odyssey of, uh, of, of, of coming back to my mother and trying to understand her, there was a moment, uh, as you were uh, pointing out, where the distance became even bigger when I went to high school. And uh, suddenly in high school, I felt um, so ashamed of my past. And for me, my mother was embodying that past. And I was ashamed of being working class. I was ashamed of coming from a milieu where we would never go to the theater, never read books, never go to the opera, of course, or never go to cinema or to... Um, and I was trying to do everything suddenly to put distance between me and and my family and particularly in my between me and 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 my mother and 
I was extremely violent at that time. There is this scene in the book where the high school asked one of someone in my family to go to the high school to sign administrative papers. And I didn't want that. I was so afraid that people would see my mother and see that my mother doesn't dress like them, doesn't talk like them, that my mother had a very thick accent from the mm. north. That's it. And I was terrified. But the high school told me, you have no choice. And so I asked my mother to come. And in the train to the high school, I said to my mother, okay, you behave well. You talk well, and you don't put your fingers in your nose when you talk. <laughs> and my mother felt so humiliated. And in a way, you know, we, everybody has this kind of um, unconscious knowledge of the class system. And so this little tiny sentence, my mother kind of understood everything of the class system, of the fact that she was not legitimate, of the fact that it was becoming someone else, of the fact that I was ashamed of her, of the social hierarchies, you know, there is this kind of, without reading Marx or Bourdieu, she knew what it meant. And so she stopped talking. She didn't say anything for the whole day. She signed, we didn't talk, we were walking next to each other. And at the end of the day, she told me, uh, it's okay, you were not too ashamed of me. Mm. And I felt that she was so hurt and she was so, she was so destroyed. And this distance was keep growing and growing and growing between her and me. Um, you were speaking, you, you were already speaking in different languages. I mean, you, you had, you know, proper long, you were starting to speak in, in long sentences with, with new vocabulary, with sort of, you know, with correct formal French and often correcting her saying, you know, one doesn't say this, one doesn't say that. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was seen very much on her part as, as an aggression, as a violence. We, oui. and also, also, also the thing is that the violence was, was uh, once again, was also on, on her side. I don't believe in individual responsibility. I believe in society. I believe in social class. I believe in structures. I believe in domination, but I don't believe in people making a choice to be violent. I don't believe in it. And my mother, she was also at that moment, extremely violent with me. There is also this other scene in the book where I got sick uh, because I had my uh, appendicit, is it how we say in English? Appen app appendicitis. And I was saying to my mother, I'm, uh, it's painful, it's super painful. And my mother, she was perceiving me as, a, as someone who was becoming a bourgeois. And in my childhood, we had this perception that to go to the doctor was something very bourgeois, you know, to take care of your body, to be very worried about your body. And so there was a huge, in, 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 in the working class milieus in general, if you read sociology from the US or from England, it's the, sa it's the same. There is a huge resistance to the, to the medical uh, world, you know, which can explain a lot of uh, working class people fighting against the vaccine, for example in the US and everything. Um, this idea that the medical system is linked to a certain class habitus and a certain way of dealing with your, with your body. And I was telling to my mother, I suffer, I suffer, I suffer, and she didn't care. She was well, you telling were, you me. You were fainting. You were sort of almost sort of losing consciousness. I, I went to the hospital and yeah. they finally, my aunt brought me to the doctor uh, and they told me 24 hours more and you were dead mm -hmm. and I had a septicemia and I had to stay three weeks in the hospital. I had six months of being exhausted. Uh, it was extremely violent. I was very close to death. And so when I 
tell you about the ways I was violent with my mother. I don't tell you that to show you I became a good person or to tell you I'm sorry for what I've done. <laughs> uh, because it's not the point. The point is to describe how some social dynamics create violence between individuals. Even and within the family. Within the family, how and how... how how it goes in, 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 in spite of individuals because they are crossed with violence and therefore they reproduce this violence. You know, there is this, this idea in Franz Fanon or in, in, in Jean-Paul Sartre's introduction to uh, The Wretched from the Hearse of Franz Fanon where he says uh, every, every, every act of violence coming from some, uh, a colonized person uh, is to blame on uh, the, the, the colon, the colonizator, the mm. colonizator, because they create, a, 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 they create a context of violence in which they put violence in people's bodies, and then they cannot be surprised if people um, uh, reproduce bodies. And so my mother as a woman, or me as a class transfuge, as a class traveler, as a class defector, as a class, uh, we were crossed by that violence. And what I'm trying to do is to understand this violence in order to 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 reduce it and this is an this is an idea that is very central for me i always talk about it i probably already talked about it in this bookstore but there is this idea that um sometime when we suffer from a bad day at work or from a bad day in our life we come back home in the evening and sometimes we are mean or aggressive to someone we love and the day after we regret, we think like, why did I do that? Why? And we feel that violence is not a property that we own, but it's like an electric current crossing our bodies. And we all feel that. Everybody experiences that. It's impossible to resist. And this psychological rule is also a sociological rule. Mm. And when you have people who are confronted every day um, with violence, suffering every day from violence, of course they will eventually at some point reproduce this violence like I did with my mother, like my mother did with me. Uh, so it's not, it's not about me or about my mother. It's about the world we live in. And it's also about politics. It's also the fact that fighting politically, which means giving people a better life, is also a fight for tenderness. Because if my mother was not having this very difficult life, she would probably have been a better mother and I would have been a better son. So when I'm in the street demonstrating for welfare, for people access to medicine, I'm fighting for those things, but I'm also fighting for the possibility for my mother to be a better person, for possibility of mothers to be better with a queer son, with a queer daughters, with the children, or with the friends in general. And uh, I know how much this is true, because when my mother liberated herself mm -hmm. from my father, she became someone completely different. She became a much tender person, a much nicer person, a much funnier person, a much more generous person. And I have, like, like in a laboratory, I have the evidence that the same body in a different, in a different context and in a different life becomes another body and that it's not a matter of of responsibility. Because in the latter half of the book, she moves to Paris. She's living in a very nice part of Paris. Um, and she, it, you get the sense that her, her body is actually responding to the physical surroundings 
that she in in which she finds herself she's sort of responding to the beauty she's responding to the people she sees on the street she's imitating them she's saying things like when you say what have you done today she said i went for a, i went for a walk in the it's the, the phrase that you know, chic parisians say i went for a stroll in the in the luxembourg gardens um she she imitates the kind of the the habits and the and the language of the people around her um what to you um what has her her current what does her current situation mean to you for in terms of you when you look forward to her life because she's still very young yes i mean it's a uh it's not always easy for her in Paris, as you know, that's also mm. something that I talk about in the end of the book, because she's confronted to the bourgeoisie, to she's in a very, because she met a man who eventually became a doorman in a very, very fancy neighborhood of Paris. So she was suddenly uh, propelled uh, to, to like a very bourgeois neighborhood. And it's not easy because like, you have those very rich women who look down at my mother when she talks because she's loud, because she has an accent from the north, because she doesn't have the same body. Uh, uh, and, and the bourgeoisie sees that, and my mother sees that. Uh, and so there is this difficulty that I try also to ask in the, in the book, like how much can you liberate yourself and how much can you change yourself within a, a class structure? Uh, because this is the difference between my metamorphosis and my mother's metamorphosis. My metamorphosis was a class metamorphosis. And my mother, she never got that privilege. Mm -hmm. And so the metamorphosis is much more complex uh, because of that. But uh, she doesn't have my father. Uh, she's free, she's walking down the streets, she's in a big city, uh, she's, uh, she's meeting people, and suddenly, uh, and suddenly she's gradually, uh, yes, becoming this, this other person. Uh, once again, Franz Fanon talks about in the, in the colony, which is not the same uh, situation, but what is interesting in a comparison is to compare different things. Uh, 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 he says when you um, uh, get rid of, 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 of the colonies, uh, comment dit les colons? Colonies. Uh, colonies. Col col from the colonies. Um, uh, uh, the, the humanity of so many people in the colonized country is raising because suddenly they are free from so much violence. Uh, and in a completely different way, uh, my mother went through the same thing. Um, and she started to rediscover uh, feelings, way of beings, emotion. I remember a few a few months ago, uh, the son of my do of my sister came to Paris to visit her. He mm. stayed a few he stayed a few days with her, and at the end he was about to leave. And I went to see my mother, and I said, uh, "He's leaving now." And my mother started to cry. And she said, yes, he's living, and I'm so sad because I just love being with him. We have so much fun. And my mother would have never been able to cry when I was a child if I was living on everything. All of that was suppressed, you know? The possibility for... She was so crushed. Well, yeah, because some, something as, as simple and fundamental as time spent together 
is, is such a luxury which you never had. We and and also like don't get me wrong. I know that I I know that there are some people who are completely crushed by society and manage to be generous and manage to be tender and manage to be open. Uh, I know that I see that I witness that I saw it in the village where I grew up. You saw it mm -hmm. in the village where I grew up. There are people like this, and they are heroes, and I admire them. But I don't write for heroes. I write for losers. I write for people who don't succeed to be heroes. That's what interests me. Uh, I, I write for people who would love to be heroes, but who don't, cannot do it, don't have the strength, don't have the possibility for so many different mixed reasons. And my mother, she never had the chance to be, to, to, to live with that domination, except for the very few moments that I describe in the book. But mostly she was not this person who was, she, she, she didn't have that room for, for, for tenderness. And uh, and now um, because of that, she's uh, yes, yeah, she's kind of like rebuilding a, a personality, and and she talks about it. She t she tells me she says she tells me, oh, look look how I am now. Mm, yeah. I'm a different person. She's very aware of uh, of her transformation. We already when I was a was a, when I was a child, it's one part of the book. There is a time where we got the opportunity to go on vacation, which would never happen in my childhood because we didn't have money to go. And one day there was like a social program from the state to go on vacation. And my mother tried to get it and she got it. And, f and for a week we went to the mountains in the center of France without my father because he was telling him, I stay in my village, my village is my village. You know, this very like uh, closed mind. And, uh, and when we went with my mother for a week, for, dur during this whole week, she was, uh, it was like a, a prefiguration, like a, a, a flash forward mm. of what would happen uh, in the future when she was outside of this oppressing and suppressing structure she was um, uh, yes be becoming uh, becoming becoming someone else and you see it in uh, in the movies of Ken Loach for example how much the neoliberalism and how much the violence of capitalism is creating uh, violence between individuals conflict between individuals um, in Sorry We Missed You, you have the family fighting so violently um, because, yes, they are in the same kind of situation and that's, that's why I, I fight for, I fight for the ability for people to, to love and we. But one of the most interesting things in your work in general, not just in this book, but in all the books, is how you, in this fight of transformation, um, you situate yourself very much in this, in in the kind of the examination, in the interrogation of what it means to try and find liberation, try and escape this very crushing system. Um, and I know it's a question that that you're asked a lot in France, especially, but how it feels to be to have come from that class of people who were really kind of crushed by the system and now have moved into another class, which is actually to become, you know, you have the, you know, you have the, all the tools now of those people who were once, you know, in your childhood, and you, you speak about this in this book and in, the, in your previous book, about being the class of people who are dominating rather than dominated. So you, ha you know, you have education, you live in Paris, you know, you have a bourgeois um, profession. You're very much kind of 
the other person. You become a class refugee. Well, how, you know, how does, what does that mean to you in your work? In, in my works, it, it, means, it means everything. Uh, it, it completely shapes my way of doing literature. Not, not only what I write about, as we were discussing, like writing about my mother, about my father, about working class people in general, and living with this very present feeling of shame, you know, that I always mm. work with because I see so many privileges around me. And when I write, I'm like, I have to show those people what's, what is going on. And sometimes I have the impression that I write for my enemies, mostly. I write for the people who don't want to see that reality because I want to force them to watch. I want to confront them. I want them to feel uncomfortable or to help. <laughs> but either way, I want, I want them to tell what they are, to tell what they think in confronting them to a reality that they don't want to see, mm -hmm. you know? And for me, that's the beauty of like a, a piece of literature or a big, a big important social movement is when you confront people to reality and suddenly they are forced to say what they are, you know, like during the, the Yellow Vest movement in front of working class people, suddenly you had so many people from the bourgeoisie insulting those working class people, saying, look, they are ugly, they are ridiculous, they don't know how to behave, look at the... And you have all this bourgeoisie who usually despise the working class in silence and suddenly they were forced to say something because they were confronted mm -hmm. to it. And in a way, that's what I'm trying to do with literature. And you see like the, the, all the racist reactions to the books of Toni Morrison when she was publishing books. You know, people were f f being forced to say that they were racist. And, and, and some people were touched by her work and changed and changed their way of doing politics. So both ways work. But also the feelings that I had, uh, which is uh, one, uh, the starting, also the starting point of that book is that I had the feeling that uh, coming for, from where I come from and wanting to write about those stories, it was impossible for me to write in the institutionalized or expected ways of, of doing literature. And for me, writing about people like my mother or people like my father means also uh, to fight against the rules of literature because I have the impression that the rules of literature have been built in, in order to talk about certain lives, but never about lives like mm. my mother or my father. And, um, you know, for example, when you write, uh, you always have people telling you uh, literature should never be too explicit. It should never explain. It should. Uh, it, should it should never be political. It should yeah. never be political. It should never be direct. It That's always the other thing. use metaphor, for yes. example, yeah. hiding what you say. And for me, this is really linked to a class system where the people who produce and the people who receive literature come from the dominant class and they have an objective uh, interest in having a literature that don't unveil the world too much, that don't unveil reality too much. And so I'm always thinking, what would it be in terms of class struggle to do a literature that would break free from this rule of literature? You also have, you also have this rule of literature, as soon as you start to write, people tell you uh, it should not be too sentimental, you know? Or people tell you, um, this, good, this book is good because it's without pathos. And I have the feeling that in my life I met so many people whose life would make you cry 
And if I don't write a book to make you cry, I would betray these people. I would make them invisible uh, even more. Mm. And I have this impression that this rule of literature is also a rule that makes it impossible for me to completely uh, talk about someone like my mother. Or as you were saying about politics, they tell you, okay, there is literature, there is politics. But when I w wrote Who Killed My Father, talking about my father and talking about how much the political decisions made by French governments in the last 20 years, Macron, Chirac, Sarkozy, were affecting his body in a Bailey day, uh, daily basis, because my father suddenly couldn't uh, buy medication anymore or, or was forced to go back to work because of a new legislation, like, like in the movie of Ken Loach, I, Daniel Blake, where a sick man is forced because of a new policy in England, who say people who don't work have to show that they are finding work, otherwise we cut the welfare in a more and more violent way. So all of those political things were aspects of my father's bodies, of my father's body. And uh, for him, as I was saying when I published this book, a, a decision by Macron, by Sarkozy, was as intimate as his first kiss or the first day he made love. It was part of his flesh, maybe less for the bourgeoisie, because when you have privileges, you are, you are, you are protected from politics. You know, you have money or you have diplomas or you have the ways of, of leaving a place and not enduring a mm. situation. And so, one by one, I have the impression that I have to destroy literature <laughs> uh, with a hammer. You know, like Nietzsche was saying, you have to do philosophy with a hammer and to break all the rules of, uh, of, of philosophy one after the other in order to, to change something. I, I, I kind of feel that I have this... So my political... Uh, struggle is an aesthetical struggle because it's a fight against the institutionalized aesthetical rules of literature that politically make it impossible to talk about someone like my father or my mother. So I have this, this is, this is the biggest trace that is in me from my childhood and from that background. I cannot fit in the classical rule of literature and no one can give me a better uh, lines and to tell me Edward Louis is not doing literature. I just love it because this is this, this old fashioned conservative approach to literature is something that I, that I want to, to destroy. So it's to write inside and against literature. Sure. I, th I think we probably have to go quite soon to, quest to questions, but um, just keeping an eye on the time. But I just wanted to make an, an observation on your project, just picking up on, on what you were saying. It's often said you know, when in, in France when, um, when you receive sort of um, a criticism from the press and people will say, well, he's written a book about his father, now he's written a book about his mother, what next, his, his brother, which is exactly what you're going to do. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. But in, in a sense, for me, it, it's... Um, it's it, it's it's a bit it's this intense concentration on one social milieu and in fact one village in a sense it's it's not it's not a big village um, it's almost like you're building a sort of a huge uh, fresco it's like a big painting like a Bruegel painting where you see each life in in in, in microscopic detail and that it makes it so universal um, and that to me is 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 why all these books are so important and why read together, they, I think they give you an incredible portrait of, of not just your life, but, but a whole of French society and then a whole of sort of um, the way power and sort of dominance uh, works in, in the world.
Are we ready for questions? If we are, thank, thank you. you so much, both of you, for speaking and for your incredible books. Thank you. Um, I was like so interested to hear what you said about how, for you, the kind of ob I guess like the object of political struggle is this kind of tenderness, and the object of political transformation is this kind of tenderness, because um, that's something which I feel when I read your books after I've read them. I feel they return me into the world and into my surroundings more tenderly. And I was partly just going to say thank you for that. You. And I was partly going to say, I'm kind of curious how, how a book about pleasure would work in that context. It will probably happen, uh, but I will find probably a sad or dramatic way to write about it. <laughs> I just need to find the approach. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, for me, once again, it's not—it's not—it's uh, not—it's not normative. It's not a prescription. I don't—I don't think that it would be a bad thing to write about love or pleasure, like Roland Barthes did, or like Annie Ernaud did, or uh, in a pure—in a pure, beautiful way. But I am not comfortable with. I'm, I don't know how to do it. I love to receive it from other writers, but I don't know how to do it, and I'm always so uncomfortable with beauty or pleasure or because I have the impression that there is nothing to be fixed. It's already here. Uh, and Imre Kertesz, the Hungarian writer, would always say, uh, happiness is meant to be experienced. And I talk about other things. And so I prefer to write about ugliness in order to try to make this ugliness less ugly and eventually to create a little bit of beauty than to focus on something that is already beautiful. I prefer to keep it where it is. But I don't want to live in a world where everybody is Edouard Louis. I would suffocate, of course. You know, I need as a pleasure of writing something beautiful or positive about pleasure. Or for me, as a gay boy, the first time I went to a pride, for example, you know, I went to the pride and I saw so much happiness. And I didn't know that it was possible to be gay and happy so much. And it was politically so moving for me. So clearly joy can, can be political, but it's not my job. I, I, don't feel, I don't feel at ease with it. And so I'm trying to articulate something else. And maybe there are already a lot of books about joy, and maybe uh, violence needs more of, a, of our voices. So it's also nice if we kind of reshape all of that. But it will come, but yeah, just, just, a, just in a different way, I guess. <laughs> I also wonder whether um, a book about pleasure might result actually in the opposite response, emotional response. You get to the end of a book about pleasure and actually you feel very melancholic, like you do in <laughs> Guillaume Duston in, um, in, my, in, my, in my bedroom, in my room, um, which is ostensibly a book only about pleasure, only about physical pleasure. And at the end of the book, all you're left with is this feeling of loss, mm -hmm. which is a very interesting dynamic. True. No, but also to, to connect your, the two just briefly, uh, to connect what you were saying, uh, this was for me the challenge of this book, A Woman's Battles and Transformation, because it was a very different book from my other books in the sense that it was mostly, at the end, a beautiful story. You know, like my mother, is a, it's the opposite of my father when I wrote Kill My Father. My mother is escaping, and most of the book is about her reinventing herself, smoking cigarettes with Catherine Deneuve, uh, being happy, um, 
uh, for real. That's <laughs> true. And, and strangely, and it's related to what you and Tash were saying, uh, it, came, it came with with shame for me. And I thought, like, how can I write something beautiful when there are so many things that are not beautiful and are waiting to be talked about? And it was um, a, a kind of an ethical interpolation for me. I didn't feel comfortable. And then in the process of writing, I thought, I have to try to do is to create uh, anger out of beauty. And this, it was the aesthetical challenge for me of that book, was to try, can I write a beautiful story that would make people so angry for all the stories that didn't become beautiful, that didn't have a chance to become beautiful? Can I create anger with beauty? Can I use beauty as a material to make people angry? And this is really the, the formally the way the way I tried to write that book. So it's a tender book. It's my first tender book. Tenderness was very experimental for me in terms of writing. It was probably the hardest book for me to write uh, because of that. But it was what I was trying to do formally and aesthetically. And the best reward for me when I published it in France or in, in other countries were people telling me... Uh, you know, I, I, I read it and uh, like my mother or my grandmother or my friend never got the opportunity to do what your mother did and it made me cry and it felt so unfair. And for me it was important that people felt that way, that they don't just contemplate uh, some things that succeed, but that they would ask themselves, why can't other people succeed? What did happen? How, how much an, how unfair it is. And uh, so, we, yes, just, I just wanted to say that because for me it was extremely... Uh, just take a couple from cyberspace. Sure, then okay. I shall <laughs> be over with you. These two, I think, conflate nicely. Lee asks, um, I'm fascinated by your comments about how people reproduce internalized violence against each other. I've read a lot about state violence, slow violence, cruel optimism, but I know little about this concept. Aside from Fanon, are there any other theorists you'd recommend on this? And um, Bernadette Buckley asks, I'm fascinated by the way you talk about violence transforming itself. Can there, in your view, ever be an after to violence? I mean, yes, so thank you. <laughs> and uh, uh, first about like this concept of violence, yes, I would recommend uh, Franz Fanon, I would recommend Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, I would recommend Toni Morrison also. Uh, beloved from Toni Morrison is the story of a woman who killed her, children, her child because she's under an extremely violent situation and she has no choice but to kill her own children. And then the ghost of the children come back and haunt her and everything. Uh, but for me, Toni Morrison extensively wrote about this kind of uh, way that violence circulates or be between bodies or like uh, God Helps a Child, for example, one of her latest books, when uh, a mother is ashamed of her daughter because she's very black and the mother is 
uh, lighter black, less black, and she doesn't want her daughter to 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 be so black. So she mistreats her, she she humiliates her for her whole childhood, and the child, in order to get the attention from her mother, uh, will accuse the teacher to to have a sexual to do sexual harassment against her. But it's not true. It's just to get the attention of her mother because in this racist structure, the mother suffers from violence. So she is violence with the daughter, and the daughter is violent through creating this false accusation and like there is this circle of violence but it's true that i think that this approach to violence is not really uh, it's not formalized enough it's too it's too it's too rare um, precisely also because uh, from from the left uh, from from my side of the world uh, where people are uh, saying more clever things i mean i i think that to be left wing is just to be more clever than a right wing person Uh, that it's not a matter of opinion, but of, of ability to understand the world, uh, and uh, and from the left, you sometimes have this um, mythology that if you want to fight for the working class, I, I talked extensively about it when I published uh, Eddie, the end of Eddie, you have to say that uh, there is a solidarity, there is kinship in the working class, that people are good, that they are not like corrupted and bad like the bourgeoisie. And there is this, for me, old fashion that comes from all the communist parties of the 50s, 30s, 60s, this idea that if you create a mythology, you fight for people. For me, it's much more radical to try to take a look at the way people reproduce violence because they suffer from it. It's a way of criticizing violence two times, for the violence people receive and for the violence they apply because they receive violence. And so I think breaking free from the mythologies is a way to try to kind of think violence in this way. And once again, there are people who suffer from violence who are not violent. Sociology is not a per perfect rule. And of course, the dominant class can also be very violent, but for other reasons, and in, to maintain the domination, for example. So it's a, it's a, complex, a com complex issue. And regarding the second question, yes, I think that um, I'm always trying to understand what can come after violence and what we were talking about with, with Tash right before this, for me, this paradox of domination is a way of trying to understand how is it possible to create emancipation within a, 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 a violent situation. And uh, for me, it's also, it's, al it's also a call, my book is also a call for complexity in the, in the way of taking a look at violence and, and, and domination. The, 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 to talk about what I was saying, the fact that I escaped precisely because I was gay. My mother escaped because she was a woman. And uh, paradoxically, all the, those men, like my, my father or like my brother, uh, my brother just died two months ago. He was 37 years old. Uh, uh, his best friend died at 35 years old from the same thing. He was not sick. He didn't have a disease. He just died because in this milieu, many people die in their 30s because they drink alcohol, because they don't have food, because they don't go to the doctor. And the fact that they were dominant crushed them at some point. And so... If we want to understand violent and domination, violence and domination, and what comes after, after violence and domination, we have to understand that violence is not something static, but rather something dynamic. And for me, for example, I always find it very cheesy or very mainstream when people talk about a straight white man, for example. I find it 
I find it absurd. My father is a straight white man and he cannot walk, he cannot breathe, he's 57, his health is completely destroyed, precisely because he is in that position. And because I am not straight, I escaped. And it doesn't mean that my father, of course, he had privileges over me, of violence towards me, because he was straight and because I was gay. But so, therefore, the question is not white or straight or men. The question is racism, homophobia, masculine domination. It's a matter of process. Uh, domination is not a picture. Domination is not a static picture. Domination is a process. It's something changing. It's something evolving. And a way of dominating people can be a way of destroying yourself. A way of being dominated can become a way of disappearing or a way of emancipating. And I feel that uh, in the mainstream conversation today, we are kind of losing this complexity in the process of, of thinking. And we tend to to, to think with tags and with label, labels and with slogans. And what I try to do at my little level when I'm writing is to try to re-inject of that. Um, yeah. and, the, and, and in that way we can change things, because otherwise we are wrong and we are wrong, we don't change the world. Um, I know this book has been um, performed in Germany, I think, in Hamburg. Theater. And I know that you've been involved in you've been performing yourself and I just wonder how you view the relationship between the written text and the kind of performed text and why you see your part in it as a writer and then as somebody on the stage as well. Yeah, I mean like those two particularly those two texts the texts about my mother and my father they were I wanted them to go on stage it was more or less the way I was shaping them also ends their shortness and the reason why they are shorter than the two first books. Okay. I think just we need to explain to, to not everyone might know that um, <coughs> who killed my father the, the the book that precedes this um, was made into has been made into very very successful um, theater, stage plays. I think there are two versions of it. Is it two versions of who killed several versions, but the most notable one twenty five <laughs> in twenty five different countries. But the most notable one is a version that stars one person, um, which is. Uh, Edouard himself, um, and th this current book, this um, the latest book, is also has also been performed by, uh, been produced by uh, Evil Van Hoff, uh, notably, and, and others, and will be um, continued to be to be performed. We and the specificity of that one is that one day w one of the directors asked me if I could perform myself on stage that text. And it was extremely, I said yes, for me it was a way of um, experimenting also autobiography further. What I would love, my dream is to try to push autobiography like further than anyone, you know, to try like all the ways of struggling with autobiography because I think that autobiography is very politically strong, that it's very confrontational, uh, it doesn't give you ways of escaping it's much more difficult than fiction to escape. And I've witnessed so many times in my life where people were telling me, oh, but there is a little bit of fiction in what you write, isn't it? As if it would be reinsuring or anything. And I always felt that there was like a power of confrontation in autobiographies that I want to explore. So that's why I said yes to, to do it on stage. And also because I believe that theater is uh, probably... Uh, less uh, elitist than literature. Uh, you know, there is the, the Jean-Paul Sartre wrote a collection of essays about theater, and it's uh, called uh, "Un théâtre de situation," uh, theater in situations. 
and, and, and someone asked Jean-Paul Sartre, why theater is so bourgeois? Why is the people who go to the theater comes from dominant class, come from privileged class? And Sartre says, theater is not bourgeois. The bourgeoisie stole it at some point and turned it into a way of distinction, like good wine or like expensive shoes. But if you look at the first important forms of theater, like Greek tragedies or Shakespearean tragedies, uh, they were popular shows, you know? And also they were extremely exigent texts with very highbrow literature, which kind of questions the way we tend to think now that if something is exigent, it doesn't reach the bigger audience and everything. This is really questionable, I think, this, this way of thinking. Uh, and I think that like a lot of like very complex book, rich, big audience sometimes, like The Second Sex from Simone de Beauvoir or uh, so many books like this. Uh, and, uh, and so Sartre says it's not the story of an art, it's the story of a robbery and how a certain social class started to steal something like this. And I remember that when I was a child, you know, the schools, they would bring us to theater, we would see plays and everything. At a moment of my life where I could never read a book because no one was reading a book in my family, no one, we didn't have a book at home. So I had access to theater in a strange, crooked way, but I didn't have access to books and books were too difficult, you know. Also, when we are between people who read, we always tend to forget how difficult it is to read because very often we interiorized it at an early age. We don't think about it. But when you never do it, actually opening a book and reading all those words, it's technically very difficult. It's very difficult. And it's a kind of amnesia that we have in the cultural milieu, this difficulty. And, and so, yes, I, to, I couldn't... I couldn't I couldn't choose to be a writer when I was 11 years old. I couldn't uh, choose to play piano because I didn't have money or it was too expensive or you, had to start, you have to start at, at a very early age. But I could do theater. And I did theater. And it saved me. Because I went to the theater class and I did a little performance. And for the first time of my life, people watched me. I was 11 years old and people loved me. And it was the first time of my life that I've ever felt loved by people. They were clapping because I was doing this. Because I was this little gay boy who was always performing in order to be masculine, in order to look straight. And so performing was easy for me. I knew it by heart. I knew how to perform. So I went on stage, little improvisation, and people loved me for, for the first time. And because of that, I studied. Everything happened because of theaters that saved me like this. And so for me to do theater is to kind of like a, a way of exploring this artistic form and the social uh, possibilities of this social form and a way also of like giving back what theater uh, gave me. And literature was not able to do that. Literature is not able to do that. When I was a kid, I would see a book, I, would, I couldn't connect. I could, it was too difficult. It's too difficult. So, so yeah, confront it. And also you have people in front of you when you perform, which makes it kind of interesting and unescapable. They have to write your story, to, to listen to your story. And also that's what happens when you write a very short book. I love this. This is also a political act of saying to people, you have to be confronted to what I say. And you are not going to do like this very bourgeois choreography of putting your book next to your chimney, going to bed and opening it back. I love doing this. I do it with, with novels of Toni Morrison that I admire, like no one else on earth, like the, the novels of Taj, the novels of Alan Hollinghurst. Like. But with what I try to say, I think that there is a radicality of writing those road, 
short books, which is a way of you are going to cross all my mother's life in two hours, and you won't be able to escape that. No excuse to look uh, in another direction. And theater is like this life I love. <laughs> yep. Um, thank you really so much uh, for being here. I could uh, listen the rest of my life to you and um, your books. They, they're so amazing <laughs> and they um, help me so much. And <laughs> thank you. I have so many questions, but I will. Um, I don't know if it's allowed to, to ask two. And I think it's also so weird because we know so much. I mean, at least we have. I have this picture of you because uh, I mean, in your books you talk about yourself and um, to to see you here and. Um, Yeah, it's, it's just such a weird feeling, and uh, but at the same time so amazing. So my first question is, um, do you feel fetishized by the, by the literature community as someone from the working class? Because you're like the, the other, the exotic. And um, the other question will be a little bit, um, not, not personal, but I, I grew up only with my mother and... Um, Uh, it was always also an ambiguous um, relationship, but I wanted to ask you, do you think it's a good idea to to gift her this book, just in general? Is, is to, like, to what? To, to gift her like a cadeau. Like, um, <laughs> to your mother? Yes. Because <laughs> I, um, I, I really, I love the book. It's I think it's it's your best, I mean, it was the book that I liked the most. And, <laughs> thank um, you. Yeah. So, <laughs> thank, thank you so you. much. Yeah. No, first I don't feel fetishize. Uh, <laughs> it's difficult to say it in English. Uh, no, because I feel more either supported or attacked, but not not this because I have the impression that I'm not. I'm trying to not give the narrative that the dominant class is expecting me to give, because in fact they. The literary establishment is okay if you talk about working class. It's not a problem. There are so many books about it. It's, it's, it's okay. But they want you to talk about it in a certain way, you know? Maybe like in a fetishizing way or maybe in a, in a romanticizing way or in a, in a funny way or in a... But when you give another narrative to the same bodies, for example, when I say the violence from these peoples comes from your violence, comes from the violence that they suffer from, and the violence that you are responsible for, uh, then people either are on your side or hate you. And uh, this is, for me, the role of literature. And you have to be hated. You have to confront people to things that yeah, make them uncomfortable. And on the other side, have people who fight alongside with you. And also, I don't credit the bourgeoisie for such power. Uh, I don't think that they welcome or fetishize me. I feel I think that I impose the story to them that they don't want to that they don't want to listen. Like some of them, not all of them. There are people who want those stories. There are people who have the same trajectories as me. There are people who are left wing. I don't I don't talk about the fact you know like having the same uh, bodies as me or anything. You can come from the bourgeoisie and be the most beautiful fighter of the working class, like Jean-Paul Sartre was, that I was quoting a lot today. So I don't believe in uh, experience, I believe in thinking. And, uh, and so, no, I, I, I think that, I, I, for me, it would be giving too much credit to the dominant class, to things that, you know, they can use me or... Um, I don't feel that way. 
Uh, and it's important when we fight against class domination to not overestimate the power of the dominant class in a strange way and acknowledging the power, but not too much. It's a very difficult, uh, like, tricky situation, a very Kafkaian problem, you know. And regarding your, your, your mother, <laughs> feel free. Uh, um, the thing is, um, it, I mean, I, I've met people who... who who have done that, uh, and sometimes it created the conversation. Sometimes it was difficult for the mother in question, who was she didn't want to see what she went through again. Uh, so some friend told me I bought it to my mother, and she suffered too much. It was too it was too hard for her to be fa to 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 be confronted to this suffering again. And some people even told me my mother had the same uh, had the idea of doing the same things than your mother. I had people who came and told me after reading your book, my mother chased my father. <laughs> so I would like to create like a panic in the <laughs> straight community. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I'm kidding a bit. But yeah, someone told me that story. Uh, so no, I don't know. But also, it's a question of uh, it's I, okay. I don't want to talk too much. I, uh, maybe it's the end for me then, uh, because I'm very talkative. But the thing is, uh, um, because all, always, of course, and now also, it's also also a big part of the mainstream conversation today. Uh, one of the questions that came. Uh, raising again and again uh, was uh, what, what is it like to write about your mother or to write about something else, uh, someone else, another life, another story. And precisely, uh, some people don't want to tell their story or don't be too confronted to their own stories. That was uh, what I was thinking when I said some people came and told me I gave the book to my mother and she went through so many similar things and your mother and she didn't want to talk about that. She didn't want to, she wanted to move forward and not see that again. And I think this is something that we should also encourage the, the ability and the right to not talk about our lives and therefore to have someone else who write about our, li our lives. And sometimes I have the impression that in the privileged class, there is uh, what, what Bourdieu would call an ethno ethnocentrism. So you come from a, an ethnic minority of the bourgeoisie, uh, so a class ethnia, uh, class ethnie, and then you believe that the whole world is like you. But in fact, what you see as a human condition is just a class condition. And I know that the cultural bourgeoisie uh, love to talk, you know? The cultural bourgeoisie is writing books like me. I include myself, I'm very ironical. I write about me, I write about myself. The cultural bourgeoisie write in the media, they go to psychoanalysis, they talk about themselves, they go to therapy, they go to couple therapy, they love talking. So the, 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 the cultural bourgeoisie is the talkative class. Look at me, you know? <laughs> And the thing is, they, they believe that it's, it's everybody's urge. And, and for me, there is like a, a, a class centrism in this, sometimes in this question, not realizing that there are some people in other world and in other class that don't want to talk, that they don't want to, like it's not everybody's dream to be political or to stand up or to talk or to tell their life or to tell their story. And what I can tell you is that when I was talking to my mother, she, she, she didn't want to tell her story. She wanted me to say it. She was saying, I asked her to put her pictures. I asked her to put her name. So, for example, the name is different than from the other books, because in the other books, I was writing a fake name. Then I asked her, can I put your real name? She said, yes. So I put the real name, Monique. But it's, a, it's, it's also a right to uh, give your 
life and your body to, to someone else. And this is what I was talking in history of violence, about uh, sexual violence or about rape. When you are raped, some, sometimes you don't want to talk about it. Someone you want other people to take charge of it and to be in charge and to tell your story at your place because you suffered from something you didn't choose and you don't understand why you should be the person who talk about it again and again. Society cannot force you to carry a wound that you didn't ask for. And so my, my, my book is also a call for that, for the ability of uh, telling uh, other people's story in the, in the most fair way possible, in the more just way possible, but also to, yes, to, to do it. I think it's also an act of generosity. I think there might be one more question. You've partially answered this one from cyberspace, I think, but um, Dr. Margarita Sprio asks, do your family members have a view about being the central subject in your books? Did, did they talk about it? No, that's the question. Do they have a view? Yeah, I mean, like for, for this situation, I know that, that my mother was uh, okay because we, we did it in, in a kind of agreement. Uh, it's difficult to answer because we don't, we don't really talk so deep about what I do with my family. Uh, we kind of... Um, we don't talk about a lot of things, like mostly sons and mothers and fathers. Uh, we avoid important issues and we talk about the weather. Uh, but sometimes, no, sometimes we do talk. And I know they are okay. They are okay. I know that one day a journalist asked my fa called my father to ask him about the book I wrote about him. And uh, my father said... Uh, everything my son wrote is true, and he, he stopped. The, and the journalist was very disappointed because he wanted to write a crunchy story about my father disagreeing with me. But it's once again, it's a difficult question to answer because um, uh, it's true that I have to. It's a little bit cruel to say that in a, such a raw way. But when I write, I don't think of my family. I don't think about my father or mother or sisters or brothers' feelings. I think, I think politically, I think in terms of homophobia, in terms of class domination, in terms of racism, in terms of... Uh, and for me, bodies are a mean to talk about those issues. I prefer... I clearly prefer the gay movement over my father, for example. And uh, if, I can, if I do something that can liberate some gay people, but that might be hurtful for my father, I will do it anyway. And that's, that's the way I am. Uh, I cannot control that. <laughs> voilà. <laughs> no, it's okay. Any no, other I contributions or shall we? <laughs> I talked to Round of applause. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.